Teach me about the Great Lakes. Teach me about the Great Lakes. Welcome back to Teach Me About the Great Lakes, a twice-monthly podcast in which I, a Great Lakes novice, ask people who are smarter and harder working than I am to teach me all about the Great Lakes. My name is Stuart Carlton, and I know a lot about the ungodly amount of coffee that uh, Teach Me About the Great Lakes associate producer and fixer Ethan Chitty drinks every morning. But I don't know a lot about the Great Lakes. And so that is the point of this here podcast. And I am joined today uh, by Illinois Indiana Sea Grant strategic communicator, Rini Miles. Rini, how are you? I'm good, Stuart. I'm happy to be joining you today. Um, I look forward to our conversation. Yeah, me too. Me too. I'm all fired up on coffee. So yeah, I I, um, I got to the office. And uh, so my mother-in-law's in town. So I'm getting to the office early. Uh, and and uh, that's good. But so I didn't have a second cup of coffee. And Ethan brought a coffee maker into the office and I went to make coffee and I realized that I don't know how to make coffee, not like a jackass, <laughs> like the way, you know, I'm like, oh. um, and, and so, uh, but he taught me and he told me he drinks two of these pots of coffees a day. I'm like, that explains your productivity compared to mine, I think. Both on the job and off the job. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and then he's out there like a beaver working wood. Yeah. Do you, are you a coffee person, Rini? I can't recall. Yes. In fact, um, this morning I was just totally stupefied until I finally, until I had my, my cup of joe and look at me now. <laughs> look at you now. Totally de-stupefied. That's how we like it. It's to, the, the less stupefaction, the better. Well, anyway, for the second episode in a row, I do not have a clever transition into today's um, guest. That's okay. Uh, um, I, I'll have a stupefying transition instead. And so that is this weekend, the, a couple days after we record this, probably the day before you're listening to it, is International Storytellers Day. And I'd never heard of this until I saw it bouncing around social media and I said well that sounds really good because one thing we like to talk one thing we like to talk about is kind of the importance of stories and like the stories that people tell themselves or about the Great Lakes and things like that and so um, I was looking around for people to talk to and we found a really interesting guest I think so rather than me uh, give it all away why don't we just go ahead and um, bring the guest on does that work for you? Indeed. <laughs> Our guest today is Dr. Rachel Haverlock. She's a professor of English and the director of the Freshwater Lab at the University of Illinois in Chicago, Chi-Town, the second city. And um, this was interesting to me because I did not know that um, professors of English had something they would call the lab. So I was like, well, we have to talk to this woman. She sounds amazing. Any professor of English is automatically amazing, um, but then doubly so because of this. Rachel, how are you today? I'm doing great. We're so glad to have you on. Thanks for coming. So, all right, let's just start with that. You direct the Freshwater Lab. What is the Freshwater Lab? What do y'all do? Yeah, so the the Freshwater Lab is actually a humanities lab. So we really focus on the relationship between people, whether they're at the scale of individuals, neighborhoods, communities, the whole Great Lakes watershed wide. And we're really interested in human relationships with water. And, you know, one of the things that mediates and influences the relationship between people and water is infrastructure, right? We sometimes have the great pleasure of like going to the beach, of being, you know, on the water, by the water. But we also experience it in all kinds of ways that are determined by the, by the built environment. So the Freshwater Lab is really interested in that relationship between people and water, how water impacts human activities and experiences, and how human production, social forms, economic engagement, how that actually produces the nature of water. I think I get what you're saying, but let's see. So you talk about how people's experience with water um, is is 
sort of mediated or, or directed by their by the built environment. So what do you mean by that? Do you mean because like we tend to build right up to the water what the structures are in or what what are some examples kind of of what you're talking about there? Yeah, your example is is certainly one, right? So if we are in a period of rising lake levels, then is that water going to flood somebody's back door or are there wetlands there? That's a kind of infrastructure, green infrastructure, nature-based infrastructure. Are there wetlands there that can hold that water back? Is there a seawall that might um, protect a certain stretch of shoreline, but direct it somewhere else, right? Maybe onto a community that doesn't have the, the tax base or the individual revenue to, to build a kind of seawall. So that's part of it. But, you know, we also, of course, are in a period where our eyes have been opened to the whole question of lead service lines. And so there's a key example of how infrastructure has a direct impact on human health, um, economic possibility, the property value of a home. So, you know, that question of is the service line lead? Is there treatment, the phosphates, to make that safe for consumption? Has that been suspended? Is the lead service line going to be replaced? So, you know, that's a key element of water influencing human life. So how do you go about your work? So the work has a few few different avenues. Uh, first of all, we do we conduct community-based research to understand how people are experiencing water. And also to really record this whole new era of water leadership. You know, we, I think in much of the 19th and 20th century, water leadership were either elected officials or engineers or people at utilities. And, you know, those continue to be water leaders. But the kind of changing nature of water geography, the failure of infrastructure, the ongoing or added stressor of climate change is creating a whole new set of water leaders that are coming from different fields, different communities, and there are great ideas about water and in particular about the future of the Great Lakes. So part of what the Freshwater Lab does is we go out, we meet these people, we do community-based research, we gather stories and information and visions about people's experience of, of the lakes and local water. And we um, analyze and present that and we try to make it as accessible to the general public as possible. So we create digital storytelling platforms. Uh, we have a host of events also, you know, some of that research is, is going into recommendations for things that could be built or ways in which the community could get more involved. And last but not least, you know, I am a, I am a professor and I'm really excited that the Freshwater Lab has programs for leadership and teaching. So also training this young generation of water leaders to, you know, really step up and, and allow our part of the world to survive and, and thrive amidst climate change. 
That's really interesting. I have 10 questions related to what you just said. Um, I'll forget nine of them, maybe 10. But, but so, so one thing you say is you analyze, so you gather people's stories. Um, and, and I know you have these websites that I want to talk about. And so that's one way you gather stories. Um, maybe also you go out and actually talk to people, or maybe you did. Um, and maybe you will again one day. So, and then you say you analyze them. What kind of an analysis are, are you doing? So uh, the reason I ask is, well, I was a literature major in college. And, um, you know, the professors there, they published, but the main thing that was good about that was you could go read their journal articles or, and, and then you would know what to write on your exam. And then I do like media content analysis where I look for like frames and things like that. So are you, are you analyzing frames or what, what are you looking at with the narrative? Yeah. So when we go out and, and gather stories from, from individuals, from community groups, you know, we're, we're really looking for those common themes And we're also looking to how those stories, you know, record experiences that aren't being captured any anywhere else. One example of that comes from, you know, say like environmental justice communities that often experience the worst flooding, you know, the failures of infrastructure, sometimes the most errors in their water bill that can bring really negative outcomes to their lives. And so often when policy analysts sit down, you know, they're, they're missing this human dimension. So uh, on that theme, although, you know, we have different methods that we use, something that's been really important to the whole team is a really important concept by a literary scholar named Rob Nixon. And Rob Nixon talks about slow violence. So Nixon says, you know, we are acclimated to you know, the opposite, fast violence. These are the, you know, the, the kind of really tragic shootings or, you know, even the, the horrific war we're witnessing now in, in Ukraine. You know, on mainstream media, we see a lot of fast violence and it shapes our responses, our sense of safety or fear where we live. But slow violence involves that accumulation of toxins, the exposure to negative environmental conditions, right? The the public health impacts of something like uh, lead poisoning through your water service line. That's a kind of a slow violence that also occurs, but it occurs often outside the frame of mainstream analysis. So slow violence, for example, has been one of those themes that we use to frame the material that we get. And so the material that we get in many cases serves as kind of evidence for the slow violence going on in in the Great Lakes region. But, you know, we try not to stop with recording it, which is vital. But we also really engage students, community members, you know, Great Lakes people of like, okay, right, with this kind of evidence, what do we do now, right? How do we make sure that our region, which I I truly believe is going to be an oasis for the world in the 21st century and beyond, but we've got to address that slow violence in our region, before we can be that place that can accommodate climate migrants and, you know, investors and new business, you know, we've got to, we've got to take a look at the way, for example, Great Lake cities have been so battered by segregation, deindustrialization as a precondition to the Great Lakes fulfilling its, its destiny as, as an oasis for the world. 
wow, the uh, slow violence, that's power. I'm like, I'm almost speechless. I hadn't thought about that. But I mean, that's exactly uh, the way. And, and so that's where that power. Oh, yeah. And and like you think about Flint, for example, you're talking about the lead in the water and stuff like that. And it really is. It's 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 just slow. And it often is the powerless uh, or the less less empowered, I guess, uh, who that affects. That's that's a really powerful concept. And that ties into this idea of, of story. Right. And and so you're helping people to tell their stories and share their stories and putting a name so I guess that's the deal, right? So we had like I hear the name "slow violence" and it it makes a bunch of things click in my mind, and so I guess is is that kind of what you're trying to do with these stories is help people to to make it click, and not only in their mind but in the minds potentially of people of the new water leaders who you're talking about. It's absolutely right because going back to what I, I said before that the freshwater lab is really focused on this relationship between people and their water and also among all the people who share a drinking water source. It's a very, very powerful and necessary human connection, right? I, I think it's uh, no secret. We're living in a very polarized time, but I've seen in my work in in other parts of the world, the real power for people, no matter their ethnic or religious background, no matter their political leanings, it's very, very powerful to gather people around their common source of drinking water and investigate together, you know, what's the quality of that water, how much is available, how's it being used, who's benefiting. How do you form relationships with something like water? At the Freshwater Lab, we really believe that stories are those links that form the relationship, right? The stories that we tell about water influence our orientation towards it. When we can hear from someone who might, you know, also draw from Lake Michigan, for example, and we hear that for some people, you know, they, they've got a beach for residents only that's well maintained where they can really relax and, and form great memories with friends and family. And that other people, you know, have dangerous effluent, you know, lapping up against their back door. You know, stories are the place where we learn about our water and we learn about one another in light of that water. So as you go to these communities to to hear the stories, how do you ensure that you have good, proper, sufficient representation in terms of the different story types that are out there? Yeah, it's a really great question. So I'll I'll take the example of freshwaterstories.com. That's our digital storytelling site about Lake Michigan, but has relevance beyond Lake Michigan as well. And so that was a process where I connected with different water leaders in different communities, and they were really a range of communities, urban, rural, uh, reservations, communities of color, affluent suburbs. You know, we really wanted a full spectrum. So I was connected with or or reached out to different water leaders. I had hosted at University of Illinois at Chicago, a series of summits where I got to meet many of the leading lights. And so I visited them in their communities. They connected me with other people, you know, through a whole network of friends and and colleagues and public figures. I sort of um, met a contact in each of the communities we visited. And they helped with the recruitment. 
right? It wasn't like, you know, statistically scientific, but everywhere we went, we had a really robust crowd and we usually brought some kind of material to meet one another, then a few reflection points. And then we really opened up the discussion to what people wanted to share. And it's incredible. You know, if you think about Lake Michigan, it's, you know, it's one lake, but the kind of knowledge and connection with that lake, you know, it it really is different, the different places that you go. And it's, I mean, I continue to learn so much when I'm able to go out to these communities. And, and, you know, and it really shows that local knowledge is so vital and so rich and deep. And there's so many traditions and so much transmission there. But sometimes I think because so many of our media networks are national or international or global, you know, we, we, we forget to focus on that local level and, and really tune in to how people have these very distinct experiences based on where, they're li- where they live. Yeah, I'm totally in on this. I, I, so I, I um, we don't need to go over my life history, but so I was a lit major, but I actually, my master's degree is in like uh, fisheries biology and I moved into the social science side. And so with that, uh, when I first moved in, I was very suspicious of qualitative research. Like I go back and look at my original notes and like, I have a lot of snarky comments in the margin, but like the longer I've gotten into my career, the more research I've done, the more power that I think there is to draw from that. And it's a different mindset. You know, you mentioned, well, we don't not necessarily uh, statistically you know but that's okay right and and the point is is that like there's another it's a multi it's another way of knowing um which is something that uh uh, cat febria talked about with indigenous peoples on teach me about the great lakes episode i'm not sure but i'll put it in the uh i'll put it in the show notes and um but i i think this is another really powerful way of knowing stuff so that is uh it's 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 really cool to hear yeah and I'll, i'll just throw in there you know just just to not be misunderstood you know, at the, at the freshwater lab, you know, we completely believe in support and depend upon science, but, you know, these are social issues and they require participation. Uh, In some cases they, you know, require politics, but it also really requires kind of, you know, communal commitment, you know, everyone who draws from the water getting involved. And those are, those changes in policy and behavior and infrastructure, of course, of course, 100%, you know, it needs science, but the involvement, the motivation, the transformation, right, this is where the humanities are indispensable, right, indispensable as in the way that we understand water. And if I can return to an earlier question about why the freshwater lab it was through kind of a survey I did of thinking, okay, who's doing humanistic engagement with the Great Lakes? You know, and I did find, you know, very interesting researchers here and there, but nobody had kind of opened up, you know, this place of of humanistic inquiry. And that was one of those light bulb moments where I said, okay, my life has a purpose. (laughs) You know, I'm going to convene all of this great work, you know, all of this burgeoning leadership, all of these creative ideas and start a humanistic lab about the the Great Lakes and other transboundary water basins. 
So you're talking about the importance of the humanities, right? And so one term you you use on in some of your materials is this idea of um, citizen humanities, right? We're used to uh, the idea of citizen science, or, or we started actually calling it um, community science because over the last several years, that term citizen has become uh, unusually politicized, I think we can say. But so regardless, citizen humanities, what is that exactly? So, you know, citizen science or community science, we think about people going out, gathering data, they have a worksheet or an app or whatever, and they fire it off and then it all gets analyzed. What is what is citizen humanities and, and why is that important? Yeah, and I'll roll with you and say I've got no attachment to, to the word uh, citizen. In fact, I have a very distinct orientation towards this word. I really think about the power of inhabitation. We are inhabitants of a basin that contains over 20% of the fresh water on Earth. So this notion of acting like an inhabitant, you know, really tuning in to one's watershed, one's ecosystem, as well as that human ecosystem where we live is really vital. And we try to conduct it in, in two major ways. You know, the first way is getting information and material to the public in very usable and digestible ways. But the other way is providing tools so that your average person, right, can conduct their own process of learning about their water. One of the central ways or the main tool we've we've created to conduct this form of public humanities is kind of a curriculum. It's like a digital tool on freshwaterstories.com on the Get Involved page. And this is our source path people curriculum. So there are a few questions and some really usable digital guides in which anyone anywhere in the world can go about figuring out what the source of their water is. And then path is all about this vast, complex network of pipes that bring the water to you. Where's the water intake? You know, what's a water main? What's the pipe that brings water into your home made of? You know, who's running the pipes? Is it a utility? Is it a municipality? Is it a private corporation? So that's the path section. Because, you know, as as we say in the freshwater lab, there's a lot of power in the pipes. You know, they're beneath our feet, but um, the distribution of water occurs through these networks and they're largely hidden from view. And the records of them are not very good. So this is a real kind of, um, you know, community humanities project, like figure out your pipes. The third part is people. And that is about activating this sense of interconnection among people who share a water source, right? Our future is entwined. So whether we like each other or not, or agree with each other, you know, politically or culturally or not, We've got to share fate and we need to start acting like it. So that sense, that section on people is all about thinking about this human interconnection through water source and also thinking about which communities, you know, really bear the burden of our economic and industrial processes and who benefits. And, you know, we need to take that into account when we think about sharing a water source. Because what's shared, you know, what's unevenly distributed and that people section of our source path people curriculum 
also really looks to direct those who are interested towards the community groups doing really creative and vital work. And if they've got the time and inclination, maybe getting involved with those community groups. You know, you referenced that we have 20% of the, the world's fresh water and we think of ourselves as being very water, water plentiful. And this is sort of a segue into a different thing, which is, which is I'm really curious to hear about um, your efforts in terms of re- water recycling in the Great Lakes. Yes, before I I joined, I was deep in my water recycling research. And I think that this is, you know, one of a few major changes that we need in the region to both protect the Great Lakes and to really think about it, what, what I like to call kind of the watery economic revival that I think is possible in, in our part of the world. Right now, water recycling mostly occurs in drought-stricken areas. Before we even get there, let's pretend, for the sake of argument, that I have no idea what water recycling is. Because I don't. Uh, I mean, I, I could probably figure it out. But so this is like reusing wastewater? Or what is, just tell me, what is water recycling? Sorry. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, let's define water recycling. We hear a lot these days about single-use plastics right, that you probably don't want to use a fork for 20 minutes, you know, throw it away, and then it exists in the ecosystem, you know, for thousands of years, maybe never degrading. Well, we really need to introduce this idea of single-use water, right? We um, are used to, like, washing our hands, washing our dishes. It goes down the drain. That water gets treated like waste, And there are massive outlays of money as well as energy to treat that water that gets defined as waste, oftentimes to move it across vast distances far away from the site of use. So as we have this single-use water, we are also seeing in the American West the worst drought in 1,200 years. Uh, the, The... Midwest, known for its agriculture, is reaching dangerous lows in the groundwater. And still, you know, we're using water one time and um, throwing it away. So water recycling, you know, sort of intervenes in that idea that water can ever be waste. It emulates the natural cycle that water follows by treating water that's been used once to a very high level, to the level of drinking water, and then supplying that for a second use, like in irrigation or in industrial use or in data cooling. So if you think about water, I mean, you know, you really only need source water for drinking, for cooking, you know, for bathing and and sanitation. And then that water can be treated and put to all those other societal uses, like only about 15% of the U.S.'s water footprint is for domestic uses. You know, that means that there's a huge pie of water that where we can take that domestic water, we can take the rain, we can treat it to a very high level and we can supply it conceptually, like we could never, ever treat water like waste. Right. We could always be cleaning it and reusing it. And that is, you know, without a doubt, the best way to meet drought conditions. Now, we are not in drought conditions in the Great Lakes Basin, but, you know, in a a state like mine in Illinois, 
We've got lakefront communities these days experiencing flooding. And we've got aquifers as close as 15 miles away that are completely drawn down, right? Reaching non-viability. So what we need to do right now, and this is what the Freshwater Lab's very busy working on, what we need to do right now is really look at projections for future water needs, particularly in agriculture, because we cannot do without food, just like we cannot do without water, right? We need to kind of look at those projections, right? We need to look at volumes of wastewater, and we need to kind of address this imbalance in flooding and drought before we we have like inundated lakefront communities and completely desiccated agricultural communities. Well, this has been a really wide-ranging conversation, a lot of fascinating ideas with like water recycling and and uh, this source path people model, I think that's a really powerful way for kind of uncovering sort of maybe your local water story, right? And so that's that's really cool. So let's send people, let's give um, our listeners some action items. Which website should they go to to start investigating some of this stuff? Great. So in order to investigate your water wherever you live, the source path people curriculum, we'll call it, or tool, lives on freshwaterstories.com on the Get Involved page. If you are a person interested in water, particularly the Great Lakes and Lake Michigan, that same website, freshwaterstories.com, has 15 story, or rather 12 stories written by 15 authors, all about different issues around, along the Great Lakes. Each story is a few minutes long, has some interactive features, and importantly, has some ways to get involved. The Freshwater Lab's second digital storytelling site is all about the Chicago River. So that digital storytelling site is called thebackwardriver.org. It's the Backward River because the Chicago River was reversed to flow backward. And something I want to highlight for people there is a really engaging story created by Freshwater Lab member Tristan Ortiz that's called The River Speaks. And Tristan, you know, took this idea that we're hearing a lot about environmental personhood, you know, that a river or Lake Erie might stand in a court of law like a person. And Tristan took that idea and created script stories for six branches of the Chicago River and worked with uh, Chicago-based actors to record those stories in English and Spanish. So there you can go and the branches of the Chicago River in a really entertaining and enlightening way, literally speak to you in these, in these audio vignettes. I want to just, um, just throw in my, you know, kudos for that because I, I, that just warms my heart when I listen to some of those. Yeah. yeah so brilliant. Yeah. And that's a, that's a BA student at UIC, Tristan Ortiz, you know, completely just like took all this information and all our work at the lab. And we were, uh, we worked on it during the pandemic. So we couldn't do the kind of, you know, community-based research we were used to. And Tristan like answered that with such an incredible creative engagement. Uh, Rachel, this is really interesting. All the different things you told us about, but that's actually not why we invited you on Teach Me About the Great Lakes this week. The reason we invited you on Teach Me About the Great Lakes is to ask two questions. The first of which is this. 
If you could have a great donut for breakfast or a great sandwich for lunch, which would you choose? Great sandwich for lunch. Team sandwich. Excellent. And so when I go to Chicago, which I will start doing again more because we have a lot of staff in Chicago, um, where should I go to get a really great sandwich? I will give two answers because yes. I'm, I'm, I'm a plant-based eater. So my favorite place for a sandwich is called Upton's. Upton's Break Room. Upton's makes some, um, you know, great uh, plant-based products. And they've got this little break room where off, uh, off Grand Avenue where you can go and get really amazing sandwiches. So for the meat eaters, right, and it's Upton's, like Upton Sinclair, right, in light of the jungle. Uh, <laughs> so this is like the answer to Upton Sinclair's, the, the jungle is Upton's products and then Upton's break room. Yeah, just actually, now you've got me thinking about sandwiches. You're putting me in the wrong direction. Although I'm at the Upton's website now and right next to Upton's, Upton's break room is Liberation Donuts. Yeah, you're so right. It's your, it's your you ideal can, place. You can question the whole premise of this question by just spending all day right there. You could yeah. be right there. Those donuts are good too. Um, uh, but I'll throw in, you know, I'm plant-based, but, but for the meat eaters, uh, there is... Uh, one remaining like old style classic Chicago deli that's left. It's called Manny's Deli. And I've um, even had a chance to meet the owners. Their grandfather opened it. And it is like, you know, remains that kind of old style classic Chicago deli. Again, I'm not a corned beef eater, but that sandwich, you know, really does look amazing. Oh, I'm excited. Rini, have you been to Manny's? You're in the Chicago area. Do you know Manny's? Yes. Uh, actually, many moons ago. I haven't been there in, in a good while. Wow. Sounds like I need to get back. <laughs> I've got a double offsite now. Actually, triple, because i got to get my donut, too. The second question is this. What is a special place in the Great Lakes? So one of the things we're trying to do is create this community around the Great Lakes, and, and stories are actually a part of that. And so we like to hear about places that are kind of near and dear to our guests' heart. Um, and that are really special to them to sort of encourage our listeners to think about the Great Lakes as a special, special resource. You know, I want to start with the the place of my childhood. You know, my I, I am an open water swimmer. My my childhood beach was off Belle Isle, which is an island in the middle of the Detroit River. You know, in my childhood, the the city was really going through rapid deindustrialization and and defunding, along with um, you know really really significant um, tr troubling uh, forms of racial tension and oppression. And Belle Isle, you know, my memories are just such a magic place, right? You just drive across a bridge get a little bit away from the city and be in this jewel of an island in the vast and wide Detroit River. And it's just like the greatest place for a beach day, you know, both to, to swim in the water and be out there and just to be, you know, with other Detroiters in a more peaceful space. So, um, you know, Belle Isle is the some really, really great memories from my childhood there. And these days, now that I'm a Chicagoan, a former airstrip, Miggs Field, was transformed into Northerly Island, which is like a, you know, reconstructed wetland and flood barrier. And it is similar to, to Belle Isle. It's somewhere you can go out there and, and walk or 
bike, you know, sit by the water and you can, you know, see the city behind you and the lake shimmering in front of you. And it's just, again, one of these sites of, of an urban oasis where, you know, you can still be in the city and, and, doing all and and getting involved with all that's there. But really, you know, these places like Belle Island and Northerly Island, they're in the middle of cities. They're they're not remote, but the kind of peace that they provide and a place to connect to the water, uh, it's really extraordinary. It's, you know, again, I, I credit Belle Isle with bringing a lot of joy into my childhood and, and Northerly Island is just continues to be a, a great, a great urban refuge. That is wonderful. Well, Dr. Uh, Rachel Haverlock, professor of English and director of the Freshwater Lab and uh, purveyor of cool storytelling related websites, uh, all at the University of Illinois, Chicago. Thank you for coming on and teaching us all about the Great Lakes. Thanks so much for having me. It was a pleasure. And I'll, I'll see you at least uh, for the Upton's part of your sandwich visit to Chicago. Perfect. Well, I will, we will definitely be in touch. That'll be great. was really great. I, I'm really uh, interested in this idea of story and the stories we tell to each other. It's a different spin from what we usually get on this show, right? We talk to a lot of, you know, re- like hardcore researcher and scientist types, and, and this is a different approach to get at some different things. It was really neat. Yeah, I um, I really enjoyed it. Uh, it's, you know, in my work as a communicator, I tried to connect the science with the story. So, um, so this was up my alley. <laughs> That really is interesting. Um, well, I have to. I, I recommend everybody go out. In fact, go look at her. Go to the um. The websites are really neat. Freshwaterstories.com and uh, the the backwardriver.org. Go look at that. And, and I'll tell you what. Here's an action item right now. When you go to those, uh, if you have a Great Lakes story that you want to share, just send it to us. Uh, teach me about the Great Lakes at gmail.com or or call up our hotline um, and leave it. And if it's good, we'll uh, we'll play it on the show. It's seven six five four nine six i i s g is our hotline. Uh, great. So as a communicator, Rini, what do you have, what do you have going on right now? You're working on any kind of big pieces? Well, I just, I just finished a, um, a story about uh, our research project focused on green infrastructure and the importance of incorporating soil data. Um, and, uh, you know, it brought into Chicago communities, Midlothian and Calumet City, uh, a multidisciplinary team of researchers. So there was many kind of angles to talk about the story and um yeah i think it's a great story yeah that's cool so that'll be on our website soon i assume if it's not already it's, it's up now yeah it's up now and so what is the gist they uh they so they were all working together in chicago and like what's the what's the high level kind of summary and then people can go dig into the details so was this was the soil data one is that right yeah well the soils are that it's important to understand soils when you go about um, designing green infrastructure because it's it's better to kind of work with what's in the land as it is. Um, and Mary Pat McGuire kind of led this project. Um, she led, she did, she led this project. She, um, she thinks of it in, in a really holistic manner in terms of that we kind of need to connect with the land, you know, like the soils and the, and the history of the region and the, and the particular location of where, where you're planning to bring nature back. 
sort of a different version of connection with the, you know, we're talking about connecting with the water via stories and now connecting with the land via the way we design infrastructure. Exactly. Yeah. That's something I want to think about more. Maybe even there are more guests on is, is like that connection between infrastructure and like the way that we interact with our world. Cause I just haven't, hadn't thought about that. Um, you know, I, I, this was related to the Ukraine stuff, which is, is, is sad. Um, but someone pointed out that like in many ways, cities are the world's greatest collaborative project. Um, because they're built by, you know, just hundreds and thousands of people over sometimes hundreds of years, right? Um, it's like the different areas get built out and, and whatever. And, and so when you look at it, it's sort of this huge collaborative sort of organism that people make. And, and this was in the tragic context of people, you know, just one person can, can destroy them. And, and, uh, so that's, that's obviously horrible, but, but, but the idea that I, you know, cities are this thing that we construct together. Um, and, and so we shape each other's stories and each other's interactions in ways that maybe we don't think about because it's very bottom up the way that it happens. Um, uh, and, and so it's, it's just interesting to think about all of that and how it affects us. Yeah, um, I think in, especially in major metropolitan areas, people are going about their business, but there's like a, like we're all up next to each other and we're connected. And it's, I think, I think we're more in touch with, with, um, with that sense of society. Teach Me About the Great Lakes is brought to you by the fine people at Illinois, Indiana Sea Grant. And we encourage you to check out the great work we do at iicgrant.org and Grant on Facebook, Twitter, and other social media. Teach Me About the Great Lakes is produced by Hope Charters, Carolyn Foley, Megan Gunn, and Reedy Miles. Ethan Chitty is our well-caffeinated associate producer and fixer. Our super fun podcast artwork is by the incomparable Joel Davenport. The show is edited by the awesome Quinn Rose. I encourage you to check out her newly updated, fresh coat of paint website at aspiringrobot.com. If you have questions or comment about the show, send us an email. Teach me about the Great Lakes at gmail.com or leave a message on our hotline at 765-496-IISG. I was not in rhythm with the credit loop thing. That was pretty bad. I have no flow, but that's okay. You can also follow the show on Twitter at Teach Great Lakes. Hey, thanks so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed International Storytelling Day. And if not, you know, it comes around once a year, I guess. But regardless, thanks for listening. And keep great in those lakes. Dee-dee-dee-dee-dee.